Welcome to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe and Nick Opich of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis and psychedelics industries forward. This week, we're replaying an old favorite of ours, a conversation with Eben Britton, a former NFL offensive linesman and a dedicated cannabis and psychedelics advocate, podcaster, and all-around fascinating guy. Selected 39th overall in the 2009 NFL Draft, Eben spent four years with the Jacksonville Jaguars, followed by two years with the Chicago Bears. Since his retirement in 2014, he's been extremely open about his use of cannabis as a preferred method of pain management during his football career and has cited the health risks associated with pharmaceutical painkillers as a reason why players should not be punished for choosing a natural alternative. Eben is now a board member of Athletes for Care, a group that advocates for athletes on various issues of health and safety, including the use of cannabis as a medicine. This is a truly fascinating conversation, one that covers mental health, cannabis, the NFL, and psychedelics. Eben gives hosts Lewis and Nick a deep personal dive into the trials and tribulations of his football career and how cannabis has helped him achieve a greater sense of peace in his post-playing career. So don't sit back, lean forward, and enjoy our conversation with Eben Britton. Eben, it's a, a pleasure to have you on. I've been looking forward to this since we met about a year or so ago when I was in LA uh, recording with Mike. Um, how are you doing, man? How are you handling this this quarantine? Uh, better and better, you know. Um, this is bizarre, to say the <laughs> least, obviously. And, uh, you know, I... I don't know what to say other than it's been basically like an eight week ayahuasca trip (laughs) taking me, (laughs) taking me into the depths of my, you know, being and trudging up all my shit and, you know, making me really take a look at who I am and what I want to be about and challenging me. And, you know, I probably felt more fear and anger in the last two months than I felt in a really long time. And, uh, you know, it's been Towards very, who? Um, who are you angry you know, at? The anger is a combination of facing this deep-seated repulsion to authority figures combined with a deep-seated need to save everyone. And, uh, you know, it's been, uh, you know, it's been very illuminating for me and, and, uh, you know, I've had to let a lot go and I've learned a lot about myself and, and my purpose, you know, um, and we can get into that, but, you know, at the end of the day, I really view my, my purpose here on this planet as someone to be the light, show people the light, spread the light, spread positivity. And, um, you know, what are the boundaries around that? You know, and when do you, when do you realize that you're just trying to impose your truth onto someone else and understanding that in any sort of argument or disagreement, there really is no convincing anyone of anything, Mm -hmm. you know? Uh, especially, especially on social media, you know? And so even if I feel as though I have like the golden nugget of information that's going to show someone, you know, the, the validation of my truth, like, unless they're ready to receive it, you know, there is no Mm -hmm. convincing anyone you can't, you know, and so everyone sort of has to come to things in their own time and on their own path. And, um, it's been, it's been an amazing, you know, eight weeks of just like examining that. And I feel blessed that I put in a lot of work over the last, you know, call it five, six years since I left the NFL. That's really put me in a place to, you know, be able to weather this storm. So. Have you been self-medicating a lot with, uh, with cannabis or any other plant-based, uh, 
uh, medicines? Um, I wouldn't say a lot, but a healthy amount for sure. There's yeah. been uh, cannabis has definitely been a go-to. Um, I've even, you know, I've obviously, I'm a big fan of microdosing psilocybin and I've done that a handful throughout this trip. And, uh, but you know, really it's been about my meditation practice, praying to mm -hmm. God and to my higher power and, uh, you know, putting it out to the universe and just letting it go, man. Cause at the end of the day, like I'm not really strong enough to handle all the shit that I've been feeling, you know? So I don't think anybody is, I mean, it, you know, you talk about how this is digging up a whole bunch of shit. Um, I love that, man. That's fucking great. <laughs> you know, it's funny. We just interviewed, um, Kevin Smith a couple of weeks ago and he was doing the same thing the entire, the entire interview. So it's a beautiful thing. Nice. But you know, you, you have this unique perspective on the world where you kind of straddle both cannabis and psychedelics. How do you, how do you look at them as different? How do you look at them as the same? And then how do you incorporate them into your life? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, they're very different. They're very different tools. Um, they're both very psychedelic and by psychedelic, I mean, in the, you know, the, the root of the word, which is consciousness expanding, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, cannabis for me has been a great decompressor, a great recovery tool, um, a great sort of, uh, you know, when the day is finished, helping me sort of settle into the evening and the later hours of the day uh, to calm down and wind down. But also, you know, cannabis has always made me super introspective, you know, and if there's anything that I'm not acknowledging in myself, any bit of tension or frustration, you know, that that comes forward in spades when I use cannabis. Um, so it can be very difficult. I mean, my, my cannabis use has, and my relationship with cannabis has evolved, uh, you know, tremendously over the last call it 10 years, you know, through my football career um, till now, um, you know, and so I use it very differently than I used to. I mean, I used to be a wake and bake guy, you know, wake up even during my NFL years. Um, you know, I'd be up at five o'clock in the morning and I'd turn the vape, I'd crank on the vaporizer and, you know, I'd take, take three to five hits before hitting the road to go to, the, to go to the facility. Um, <laughs> You know, that doesn't really work for me anymore. Um, just I find that cannabis can be very, like I said, it's very decompressing. It slows me down. It sort of brings me into a recovery mode. I also like it before workouts, though. So it, it is adaptogenic in that way. Mm -hmm. you know, I feel like uh, cannabis definitely has a great pre-workout effect for me. Just sort of priming the tissues, I like to say, and preparing me to, you know, get into some intense movement. You know, lately, I've been working out probably 30 to 45 minutes twice a day. And it's super high intensity, and I'm in and I'm out, and then I can sort of get on with my day. Uh, and cannabis allows me to sort of slip into those various... Uh, it helps you, know, you achieve a flow state. Absolutely. So then, you know, psychedelics are, psilocybin in particular, you know, I'm a fan of all of them, really, but psilocybin is one that's really just, it really works for me, uh, uh, you know, and... Um, both macro and micro dosing or more the micro dosing? Both, definitely both, you know. Uh, psilocybin has been a great teacher for me and a great tool uh, since I came to it, you know, the first time I tried it, I was probably, it was after my rookie season in the NFL and we were out at my buddy's ranch in, uh, Texas. He had this massive, like 3000 acre ranch. It was unbelievable. And, uh, we were out there just howling at the moon, you know, all night on, on psilocybin. And it was just one of those, you know, experiencing the oneness of everything, uh, 
just totally joyful, heartfelt love, you know, mm-hmm. time with my dudes, with, you know, my, my best friends from college, my teammates from uh, University of Arizona. So you do realize you see the hat that Nick's wearing, right? Is it a U of A? I am a Sun Devil. Uh, oh, ASU, you yep. son of a bitch. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had to throw on some Sun Devil gear. I'm actually in Phoenix right now, so uh, I, hey, I had my hat. <laughs> nice, dude. Hey, it's all good, man. So, you know, when I, when I came out to meet Mike, I had an intention to talk to him about his five MEO experiences. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I know that you've done, you've, I've heard you talk with him about it with, with Dr. Jerry and others. I have so many questions about that, but, but, you know, where you, you know, you mentioned ayahuasca at the beginning and talked about psilocybin. Where do you, where do you put 5-MeO in that hierarchy of entheogens? Um, you know, if, I guess if you have to put them in, in some sort of hierarchy of, potency you know 5-MeO is really the top of the pyramid you know um and so you know I I like I tell people that if DMT is the riverboat ride uh 5-MeO DMT is like the spaceship you know so it's just a much more potent, faster trip, you know, in all, in all senses. I mean, you know, for me, you can go, I mean, obviously ayahuasca is like an all night ceremony Mm -hmm. and then five MEO from Bufo or whatever it might be is, you know, like a 15 to 20 minute excursion, you know? Um, But I think they really, for the most part, you know, they take you to the same places, you know, and, uh, you know, like, and it's interesting because, you know, my plant medicine experiences have also converged with my, um, furthering education, furthering self-education, uh, of the yogic sciences and yoga, um, you know, and yogis, it's interesting in ancient yogic texts, yogis talk about the elixirs of the body and how all the postures in yoga are practices to really um, ignite and optimize these elixirs of the body, serotonin, dopamine, hell, even I think they were talking about DMT because- Well, it's endemic in your body. Exactly. All of these things are found in your body. Our bodies create these chemical compounds for various things. I mean, DMT, as you know, you know, there's various theories on it. uh, But, you know, one of the sort of prevailing ideas is that DMT is sort of the gateway of the soul. And so you get this hit of DMT when you come into being in your mother's womb. And then your second natural hit of DMT in your lifetime, if you do nothing else, is on your deathbed. Well, that, they think that it's actually five meo that that when you die, your you know Stanislav Grof postulated that when you die, that you know you, your brain becomes awash with five meo and you have that bright white experience, the the whiteout. Um, and when they've talked with people who've had near death experiences, you know, and they all talk about this white light, the thinking is that that is the endemic release of five meo from from your body, you know. The DMT is thought possibly to be the source of dreams because, you know, the DMT experience is, is a hallucinogenic experience um, and dreams are <laughs> – unless you are lucid dreaming and can control it, is a hallucination of some kind. And they, there is thought that, you know, your lungs produce DMT in every breath and in minor quantities that they think – they don't know that it's being released into your brain while you're while you're sleeping. That's generating dreams. So could be. I'm- that makes sense to me. You know, I do a lot of breath work, and I would liken my experience after you know twenty minutes of breath work in the morning to a DMT trip. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you guys have dabbled in uh, any of Wim Hof's techniques. You know, he does a lot of these. The Ice Man. Uh, 
yeah, the Iceman, and he has all these practices, these breathwork practices, and there is a particular thing called the DMT breath. And so he has figured out how to access all this stuff through the breath. And even if you just do it on your own, do that 10 to 30 times. When you come out of that, you've never been so high in your life. You know, people, I've, I've, I've recommended that to people and they're like, man, I thought I was going to pass out afterwards. That's basically that you know, initial rush that you experience when you take DMT or, you know, any of these sort of psychedelic compounds. Um, but so psilocybin for me, just getting back to what that is for me in my life, you know, um, in small amounts, I have, I have never encountered anything that has put me so deeply into the present moment than psilocybin, you know, and, um, you know, and it's interesting, I, I've sort of come out of, I go in cycles and I do like, I'll do, you know, six months of psilocybin, just like every day, basically. And I'll come out of that and I'll take a few months off. And now I found myself, because I haven't had any for a few weeks now, I find myself going deeper into meditation and this, this presence of mind, this mindfulness, this awareness has really stuck, you know. And I believe that it's my meditation practice which has carried this along, you know. You're, you played in the league for uh, for five years, right? Six years? Six years, um, yeah. Yeah. You know, you, there's two questions I have. One, you talked about waking and baking in league. They tested. How did, how did you handle the testing then? Um, and then, you know, not, you know, your take on mindfulness is, does not seem to fit with the inherent violence in football. Was this? Were you this same person in high school and college and in the pros? Or talk about that evolution. So first, talk about how you got away with it, and then talk about the evolution. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so cannabis. The interesting thing is, you know, cannabis in the NFL. It's really something they don't they don't care about until you test positive for it. So. You know, and what I mean by that is, you know, in college, in Division One, in the NCAA, there's a random drug test at any point, any moment throughout the year, basically, each semester. So you never really know when a test is happening. There were semesters I got tested, you know, two or three times. There were semesters I got tested once. Um, so it's really difficult to you know, do any drugs, basically, in college. Did you still have teammates um, that tried? Uh, nah, you know, not really. I mean, guys, most guys are very, um, are very humble in that they're scared to lose this opportunity, you know, most guys. You know, then, so... In college, you know, guys are very straight-laced. I mean, I know there were some guys doing steroids, some sort of performance enhancers, um, but they never tested, you know, no one, as far as I know, there weren't any starters that, you know, struggled with, you know, testing positive on, on any drug tests. So, but then going into the NFL, they take performance enhancers very seriously, I would say. So anything like steroids, HGH, uh, amphetamines, et cetera, they're, they're under the um, uh, PED test, which happen at random throughout the year at any point, at any moment. That's performance-enhancing drugs. But then drugs like cannabis are put into the SOA test or substance of abuse test, which only happens once a year. And you basically know when that test is going to happen. It's either going to happen around the first week of spring training or it's going to happen um, around in the first week of training camp in August. Okay. So you have, you have like a, 
a three to four month window that you could be tested. In. So that's when you really, if you're a guy who likes cannabis, like I was, you just had to stop for that time. Because how long did you have to stop for? Was it weeks or a month? A few months, a few months, um, you know, and so. By the way, this is what happens when we go from home. I know, dude, I know. It's all good, man. No, it is. Um, I love my dog, but my wife is coming in and it's like, it's, you know, my dog's excited to see my wife. Almost as excited as I am. Yeah, yeah. It's all good, brother. I know how it is, man. Um, yeah. So just how prevalent was it then, if you're only getting tested in those three, four months, how prevalent was cannabis within the locker room? Were, were guys uh, trading buds back and forth being like, hey, look what I just picked up? Or was it like, no, no, no? the coaches wouldn't let well, that happen? You know, nowadays it might be different. When I was playing, you still had to go just buy a bag of weed and hope for the best, you know? <laughs> there wasn't a whole lot of selection and there wasn't a whole lot of options as far as like what you had access to. But you had a weed in the NFL, you're right? telling me you, yeah, come on, you weren't getting You, you weren't the one that was buying it though, right? Well, there was like a dealer of, of the guys, you know, that. The inner circle. The, yeah, the, there was like the circle. I mean, guys who use cannabis in the NFL, when I played, I'd say it was at least 50%. Uh, my teammate, Marty Bennett, uh, who I played with on the Bears, he was a tight end. When he came out of the league, he said that he thought it was more like 75% of guys. And 25% were lying. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I think it's pretty high. You know, guys are very intuitive, you know, and the pills are are getting a really bad reputation. You know, Mm -hmm. by the time I was coming through the league, you know, painkillers were really starting, you know, everyone was afraid of painkillers because of the potential to be addicted and... Um, there are plenty of guys dealing with that, you know, and so, you know, it's, it's like I said, cannabis is very intuitive, especially for athletes, people who are in tune with their bodies and their level of pain. And when you consume cannabis, you immediately feel that physical decompression. And if, even if it's an unpleasant experience, cannabis use is usually followed by some great sleep some very restful sleep. So even if the experience itself is not uh, pleasant, you're still getting the benefit of a great night's sleep, you know, and waking up feeling recovered and refreshed. So in that way, you know, yeah, guys in the NFL are, are using cannabis because it's the best thing to help them get a good night's sleep. Otherwise, you know, most of us are, have a hard time sleeping through the night. You know, it's difficult to get through a night of full sleep when, you know, your job is to run on adrenaline and cortisol and testosterone, you know, yeah, which are all exact opposites of dopamine and, yeah, and exactly. all the other, you know, the like war chemicals, you know? <laughs> yeah. So what about psychedelics though? Uh, were you an active user of psilocybin while you were in the NFL or no. were, were there guys that ever did it? No, I wish I did though. I really, I wish I, was uh, more understanding of psilocybin when I was playing in the NFL because I think it would have it would have blown Adderall out of the water. You know, there was a time in my second year in the NFL, I was dealing with a fucked up back. Um, I was really I was descending into this really dark place. I mean, you know, my my cognitive function was way down. I was super depressed. I was just walking around in a fog. And it was this Monday night game and we were playing the Titans and my girlfriend was in town and I literally would have rather been fucking anywhere than playing in that game. And, you know, I'm starting at right tackle and I'm going to, and my opponent that night was one of the best in the league. He was like leading the league in sacks. And, uh, I was just like looking around the locker room, like, how am I going to get through this game? You know? And I see one of my teammates who I knew took Adderall and I went over to him. I'm like, dude, can I get something to get through this game? Do you have anything I can take? And he said, well, I've got Adderall. I was like, okay, so what's the deal with that? I knew what Adderall was, but I was, what I was asking him was what, what do I need to know about taking Adderall 
you know, with pending drug tests, et cetera. And he's like, like, well, if you take this now, it's got about a 24 hour half-life. So if you get drug tested tomorrow, you will test positive. And it is uh, on the performance enhancing drug list. So you could get a suspension. I was like, okay, so what do you have to do to avoid that? He said, well, you get a TUE, a therapeutic use exemption from a doctor. So I was like, all right, give me the Adderall. I'll do that. So I took the Adderall. He gave me two of them. I popped the first one. And immediately I felt like I had new life in my body. My mind came alive. I felt awake. I felt energized. I felt inspired. I felt creative. I felt ready to rock and roll for this game. So I was like, man, I got to get on Adderall. Uh, I went through the whole process. I had a therapist at the time. So I had my therapist prescribe me Adderall. Um, etc. And then I used Adderall basically for the rest of my career. But, you know, Adderall is, is addictive, addictive, it's vicious, man, you know. So in the beginning, it was very positive, you know, I would come home from a long day of work, and I still had mental energy. And, you know, my wife even commented like, man, it's like I've got my husband back. This is great. You know, you come home, you engage with me, you're not like collapsed on the couch, you know, totally exhausted, but like, I feel like we're, we've got a relationship again. You know, you do, you do chores again, you're like, take the garbage out, etc. Um, so it was a very positive thing, but it really turned into just a hellhole. You know, I got, I just like went down the rabbit hole and became dependent on it couldn't function without it. And before I knew it, you know, I was taking a 70 milligram Vyvanse extended release Adderall in the morning. I was stacking that with two 20 milligram tablets later on in the day. So by the end of the day, I had taken, you know, 120 milligrams of Adderall. And I was, you know, losing my mind, basically, by three o'clock in the afternoon, I was just falling off the face of a cliff. How did you, how did you wean yourself off? What did you do? Years and years and coming out of the NFL and, you know, moving back to California where I had access to, you know, better cannabis and a more, uh, just a system where I could go into a dispensary now and I'd say, look, man, I need, I've been taking Adderall for X amount of years. I need something that can help me focus and sort of take the place of, of the Adderall, you know, that and running out of my prescription, you know, (laughs) basically. And, uh, but you know, cannabis was a huge part in safely and really effectively weaning myself off the Adderall for sure. But still, like I said, you know, just to bring that back, psilocybin would have been, been such a better option, you know, providing mm-hmm. all the benefits of the Adderall with none of the negative side, you know. Mm-hmm. You're deeply involved with Athletes for Care. Um, talk about what the organization does, why you're involved, and what it's doing for other athletes who may not be as aware of the benefits of cannabis as, as you are. Yeah, for sure. So Athletes for Care um, was really one of the first things, uh, that I was involved in coming out of football. And, um, it was sparked by, I started going on the circuit with a bunch of other NFL players, and then soon was joined by athletes from other pro sports on this sort of speaking circuit, uh, talking about cannabis as medicine for athletes. Um, you know, a number of guys uh, that I did that, you know, those speaking turn, speaking tours with uh, Kyle Turley, Nate Jackson, Ricky Williams, you know, and then from uh, Marvin Washington, uh, who I know, you know yeah. he's yeah. amazing. You know, these guys really, they all became, are, they're all wonderful. Like Christian Okoye is big involved in this too. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and so Athletes for Care, we met guys like Riley Cote from the NHL, mm-hmm. another awesome guy, um, you know, 
a handful of UFC guys, Olympians, etc. And it was really fascinating to see how we all shared this story of how cannabis really helped us either through our, our professional sports careers or in life afterwards. Um, combining that with uh, my the unfortunate fact that the NFLPA is not a, a viable option in, you know, who to trust or a resource in life after football, um, you know, and, and that was always a sentiment during my career as well. You know, guys were very wary of the NFLPA. Do you think it's because the, the, the unions co-opted by the owners or absolutely. Is it that- absolutely. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a complete conflict of interest. You know, there's a, there's sort of this, you know, underlying notion that, yeah, guys, we're really fighting for you, but, uh, you know, we got to take what we can get, you know, like an extra game with not, not a lot of extra pay. Right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. Um, and you know, this has happened forever, you know, and, uh, so, or at least from what I understand since Gene Upshaw passed away, I, I guess, you know, from what I understand, Gene was a strong leader for the PA and did a lot for the players. And, you know, at the time during when he was around, it was really a player's league where now it's really an owner's league. Um, and, you know, that is what it is. But and that's really at the end of the day on the players. And we could talk about it. that's a whole other podcast. Well, but. well, there's still the uh, it sounds like the NFL and the Players Association are going to within the next CBA allow for for cannabis usage. At least they're not going to yes. be suspending folks. Yes. What are your thoughts about that? And do you think that what's currently on the table is going far enough? I think that's a massive step in the right direction. I think it has a lot to do with, uh, you know, our circle of guys continuing to speak our truth and get this Mm -hmm. message out there. You know, I think we've put a lot of pressure on the league to really do something about it. And, you know, hey, is it that? I mean, at the end of the day, if they're not suspending guys for cannabis, you know, that's a that's a huge thing, you know, and they're allowing guys to use it. That's that's the most important thing. Um, you know, could they go further? I'm sure they could. I don't know the extent of, uh, what they they're just not going to test. They're not going to test for it is basically hey, what they said. They're taking I mean, it off the, the testing regime. Right. That's what I thought. So, I mean, Hey man, at the end of the day, that's, that's all we really wanted, you know, allow yeah. guys to use it and have access to it and, you know, not have to worry about get testing positive for it. Um, so yeah, I, I forget what, what the last question was that I was working on, but um, <laughs> that's fine. Don't worry about it. I want to go back to your evolution, right? Because you're an offensive, you're an offensive lineman. It's your job. I mean, it is probably one of the most violent positions in the in the game, right? Yeah. It is. It is hand to hand combat. But the person that you are today is a soulful, thoughtful seemingly at peace person how did you go from somebody who wanted to pancake that motherfucker in front of you to this guy uh well it was a it was a it was a really long and painful journey (laughs) to say the least um you know and it was even it was even an evolution through my football career you know Uh, I loved playing football because I could destroy and dominate other human beings and I could be praised for it, you know, and I would Mm -hmm. be celebrated for that, for for the amount of violence I could express onto other people. And um, it was very therapeutic for me, you know, I... I was a very angry kid, you know, I had a lot of childhood trauma and abuse and, you know, um, I had a lot that I felt I had to show and prove to the world about how tough and badass I was, you know, and so football really became this channel for me to exercise those demons, 
you know, as a, as it were. And, um, so, you know, I remember, so every time I went out onto the field, I, my mission was just to kill somebody, you know, literally like that's how I felt. That's how I, that's how I went into every game. I mean, at the end of the day, there was some semblance of this guy in there. There was the gentle, mm-hmm. lovable mm-hmm. giant, you know, everyone has always said that. And I learned to flip the switch as coaches would say. Um, and I turn into this fucking beast on the field, you know, that just was hell bent on destruction. Um, and so that really carried me into the NFL. You know, everything I did was about giving it everything I had, every ounce of my being, you know, every particle of energy that I had to give to exert on that football field or in the weight room was given. And I remember my last year in Chicago, I'm sitting in the meeting room and we're watching film and I'm looking up at the screen and my body is fucking in pain from head to toe. My back hurts, my neck hurts, my wrists hurt. And I'm watching this film and I'm just thinking to myself, what the fuck am I doing here now? You know, like I used to want to kill that guy. I used to just want to kill that defensive end that I'm lined up across from. And now like, I couldn't care less about that. You know, that's my friend. I don't want to hurt anybody anymore, you know? And immediately I knew I was like, I'm done. That's it. That's it. I've given it everything I had, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, so in that way, I really played until sort of those demons had been totally and fully exercised and released. And I had let go of all of that. Did you end up talking to Anthony Davis when he quit, when he retired? Because he, I think, what he played one year or two years for the for the Niners, and then he said, "You know what? From I, Rutgers, I don't want to do right? this." Yeah, my alma mater. You know, I'm wow. a Rutgers guy. But, and he was great, uh, man. He was phenomenal, and then he said, "I'm done." He just walked away. Wow, and it's happening more and more. Yeah. It seems like that younger guys are are getting a paycheck or two. You know, they make five million dollars or ten million dollars, and say, "You know what?" I don't need to make a hundred million dollars. Yeah. I can live beautifully on 10, on mm-hmm. five, you know, yeah. well, that's, you counsel? Yeah. I, I, you know, I never met Anthony Davis. I, it's funny you say that cause I didn't even realize that that happened, but I remember not seeing him anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, because we always used to watch the 49ers offensive line because they had one of the best O lines for, you know, a long stretch during my career, especially. So that's really interesting. You say that and that, you know, really validates and legitimizes this point that you can't do it for the money. You know, the money ain't worth it. <laughs> the millions of dollars is not worth the punishment at the end of the day. If you don't love it, you know, you work with Mike, Mike Tyson. Yeah. You, you guys co-host hot boxing, which is great. Yeah. He did. He said the same thing about boxing, right? He, his last couple of fights where he lost, he went for the paycheck. Yeah. He didn't go because he wanted to fight anymore. Have you and he talked about this just whether on cat, you know, on the podcast or just between the two of you? Um, you know, we haven't, but you know, I, I mean, obviously, Mike and I really vibe with each other. And, you know, I, I think it's, we've, we've sort of indirectly talked about that and how being at the top of our game, having all the money in the world, having the house, having the cars, having the women, et cetera, all the possible material wants you could, you could ask for and still being the most miserable you've ever been in your life. You know, we've talked mm-hmm. about that and that truth, um, you know, because that was really what it was for me. At the end of the day, I had this childhood dream of making it to the NFL, of climbing this mountain and reaching the peak. And when I did it, you know, the the unsettling truth was that it still wasn't enough. You know, it still wasn't enough to fill this, you know, giant hole in the center of my soul that said, I'm, you know, Eb, you're not, you're not badass enough for, for the world. You know, Hmm. you haven't proven enough. You're not tough enough. And so 
when you have that realization, it's like, fuck, then what am I doing here? What is this life all about? What do I want to spend my time on? You know, and that, you know, in my life after football and dealing with, you know, the shame of, you know, this realization that this dream you had is over. You know, I remember I was like 28 when I walked away from the NFL and I had this just plummeting feeling at one point. And I was like, oh my God, what have I even done with my life? I'm 28 years old and I feel like I've got nothing. You know, I feel like I've done nothing. I feel like I've wasted my entire life. And, you know, the shame that comes with that and when you're talking to people and you no longer have this, this way of relating to the world. And, you know, because throughout your time playing football, you know, every relationship I had revolved around me being a football player and me being an athlete, me being this star uh, on the field. And, you know, so all of my interactions with my parents, my brother, my, you know, my girlfriends, my, you know, loved ones, my friends, etc. And then, you know, later my daughter, my wife, all that. It's always about like keeping Ed, don't bother Ed too much. He needs his rest. He, he shouldn't mm-hmm. have to handle this. You know, don't put him in charge of anything, not the groceries, not the bills, not this, not that, you know? So when you come out of that, it's just like a tidal wave comes crashing over you of your entire life, you know, and you have to start over. And, uh, what was the first step you took? The very first step, the one that you said, I'm going, you've been your entire life focused on playing football and now you're done and your earning is done, right? Because you, you know, most probably you will never earn the same way that you earned in the league. So what was that first step you took in a completely different direction? Well, thank God my wife said, now you got to start writing your book. And I was like, oh, okay, that sounds like a good idea. You know, I always had this underlying fallback of being a writer. I majored in Mm -hmm. creative writing at the University of Arizona. I fell in love with writing sometime in high school and the art of storytelling and I had stacks of journals from my playing days, from college through the NFL. And my wife is like, take that and write your book. That's your next step. I was like, okay, sounds good. So I had my football agent hand me over to a literary agent. We started working on a book proposal. Uh, I put that together, um, pitched it to a handful of publishing houses. People really liked it. Uh, no one took it either because they, you know, had fulfilled their sports book criteria for the year or it wasn't red carpet enough. You know, this, my story was really like the day-to-day grind of an offensive lineman in the NFL, you know, Mm -hmm. what that looks like. It was like Charles Bukowski meets North Dallas 40. Um, and so I want to read that. Yeah. I think a lot of people would read that. I'm in, dude. (laughs) Hey man, I'll fucking write it and I'll self publish it anyway. <laughs> I like Good. it. I like it. Anything if you're if you're writing Charles Bukowski, you know, it, it, it was a helmet cr- like crawling across the field in, at some point. At one point, yeah. <laughs> um. So, but that book proposal turned into this article I wrote for an editorial section of SI.com, uh, where I talked about my experience dealing with injuries and prescription drugs and Adderall and cannabis was in there a little bit. Um, and this article, it got a lot of attention. It, it, uh, went deep, man. It went far. It got a lot of reach. Um, I even had like my old athletic trainer calling me all pissed off about, you know, why I lied about my experience. And I was like, okay, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. It was pretty heated, but (laughs) he was pissed off. Uh, But I was like, hey, man, I wasn't trying to throw anybody under the bus, you know, in all honesty. And I didn't even think that what I talked about put you guys in that bad of a light at all. I thought it said more about the coaches, to be honest, than it did about the trainers. But he took a lot of offense to it. So, you know, it was it was good. It hit a nerve. Um, 
So that sort of organically transitioned into, uh, by some cosmic happenstance, I got in touch with Kyle Turley and I started talking about my experience with cannabis. And so my cannabis advocacy really started to take shape. And um, I went to that first, I remember going to that first conference that Kyle invited me to. Um, and it was in Phoenix and there, the room, it was filled. It must, it was the biggest conference I think I've still ever been to. There must've been 500 people in attendance. It was Kyle Turley, Ricky Williams, Nate Jackson, and me doing a panel on cannabis in the NFL. And it was my first time really being open about my cannabis experience throughout my football career. And I didn't really know what to expect. Like I didn't know what to say. I, I was even still a little unsure of, you know, the validity of that story um, because I had always been very affected by the stigma of cannabis, you know, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. as a team leader and a guy who was always like a team captain and the guy that the coaches looked to, to give the example of how to do things, I was terrified of anyone really finding out, you know, that I used cannabis, that I smoked weed, that I was a stoner, you know, that was terrifying to me. You were, so, you were the definition of a functional stoner, right? I mean, Absolutely, yeah. I mean, shit, you know, you don't just get up and go play in the NFL every day, you know, with, with all on luck, you know what I mean? So, so since that, that conference, like how much have you felt a responsibility to try and normalize the conversation around for, for your fellow athletes around cannabis? Yeah, so, I mean, really this, this fire was lit there. You know, first of all, I saw the range of people that this medicine positively affects from cancer survivors to military veterans, these children that suffer these intense seizure syndromes like Dravet's, etc. And I was just sort of blown away at how many people uh, need this medicine of cannabis. And then I finished talking, Kyle Turley is talking. And he opens up his, his, you know, story with talking about the federal government's patent on cannabinoids as neuroprotectants and antioxidants. Patent 6,630,507. And it blew my mind. It blew my mind that the same governing body that has made cannabis illegal and demonized it and stigmatized it so horribly has also seen through scientific studies the legitimacy of this plant as a medicine. And not only that, but its effect on brain trauma, concussions, et cetera, and its prevention and you know, post-injury healing of the issue. And that just it 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 just exploded this fire in my in my gut, in my heart that, you know, I had to just continue to learn as much as I could about the plant, how it works in our body, the endocannabinoid system, the history, the science, et cetera, and share that to spread this message of how important this medicine is. Look, guys, just, you know, just from my perspective, if guys in the NFL could have access to cannabis, what a huge difference that would make. You know, so many guys are dealing with uh, you know, mental health issues in their life after football as a direct result of all the concussions and brain injuries they've had knowingly and unknowingly throughout their 10 plus career, 10 plus year career in football. So, you know, I was just like, whatever we got to do, I'll tell my story all day long. I don't care who thinks I'm a stoner, who thinks I'm whatever. It doesn't matter because what matters is the truth. And what matters is, you know, waking people up to this, this fact that cannabis is a medicine and a very important one for football players and really for all human beings. So, um, you know, that was a big turning point for me in my life after football and gave me something, gave me sort of a new life and something to focus on and something to be passionate about. 
Yeah, I was listening to some of your, your past interviews, and I think the thing that you said that really stood out was that cannabis helped keep your brain intact for that life after football. And I, it's very evident that, like, you know, you're a very introspective person. So I'm really glad that it helped you out as much Thanks, as it has. Bro. Yeah. And it, continues to. Yeah. 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 All right. I got to ask a silly question. Okay. All right. Um, you and Mike have talked about smoking $40,000 a month of weed. Come on. Uh, how, how do you figure 40? That's like, <laughs> I can't even picture that much. Dude, I Where did think, you come up with? I think that number was the amount of weed smoked by the entire office of Tyson. I've been there. It's pretty amazing. Just all but I would smoke. say, you know, Mike, Mike is like a two fisted smoker. I mean, he, he's got joints just streaming, rolling in. Dude, so I, I, I was lucky enough when, when I interviewed him and I met you the first time I spent three hours with him. I I've never smoked as much in my entire life as I did with him because it was like nonstop. He's like, bring me another one. Bring me another one. I just want another one. Give him two. Give him two. Yeah, exactly. What Lewis isn't telling you is that he walked away from that conversation with nothing recorded either. So we got none of it. It's the truth. You know what? It was when you guys were setting up. Oh my God. It was the worst experience. It was literally your studio hadn't been fully set up. Your sound engineer said, don't bother using your equipment. We'll use ours. I go 45 minutes with him and Rob, Rob Hickman, who's his partner. Yeah. And the sound engineer comes and goes, I, I, I didn't get anything. I'm like, what? No. <laughs> Swear to God. So I do, he goes, just do it again. I'm like, <laughs> do it again? So I do another 45 minutes with Rob and Mike. He goes, yeah, I, I, I didn't get anything. I'm oh, like, you're telling no. me I just spent an hour and a half with Mike and Rob Hickman talking so about sorry. everything from parenting to the toad to every, it was, it was like the most amazing conversation and nothing. So I came back out and did it again. I had, I recorded three times with him about wow. basically it was, and he was unbelievably generous with his time. Like he's, yeah. he's truly a, like the way I describe him is you would expect when you meet Mike Tyson to be this undercurrent of anger and violence. Yeah. And it's not there. Yeah. He's just a kind human being. And I don't know if it's, if it's his experiences with ay ayahuasca or the toad, cause he, he ascribes it to the toad, but his psychedelic experiences seem to have burned out all of that pain from him, which is really amazing. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, you know, Mike is very introspective, you know, and he's very, uh, I mean, he, he changed my life. It, you know, it, it, it's gonna, it, I'm not even being facetious. Like I went out there, I wanted to talk to him about his experiences and, um, one, it has made my company, you know, I, Nick and I work for my public relations firm and we are deeply involved in the cannabis industry and we're deeply involved in the psychedelic industry you know, it changed my life. You know, his, his talking about his experiences said, this is real for me. I, I need to explore this. And this is also real and needs to be the same way you're describing the medicine of cannabis. You know, the, the psychedelic industry is as important um, as the cannabis industry. It's fundamentally different. Cannabis is at, at its core consumer packaged goods, right? You, you walk in and you're going to buy a pre-roll or a vape cartridge or an edible that's not the way that psychedelics is, but it is just as impactful and important. And, and we have as an agency committed to helping communicate about all of the, the medical benefits of, of both cannabis and psychedelics. And that's, that's because of Mike. It's awesome, man. It's so important. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. it's not a coincidence that all of these plant medicines are emerging, you know, we're in dire need as a species humanity is in a fucking mental and physical health crisis. No, Rick, you know, Rick Dalton calls it time. mass mental health that we absolutely, need. Absolutely. And so, you know, these plants really just plug us back into our true nature, you know, and the source of all things. And so, you know, I, I'm a big believer in the power of plant medicine and, you know, it doesn't really matter at this point what anyone else's theories on it are because I know I'm about results and truth. 
you know? And outside of that, it doesn't really matter to me what the establishment deems is, you know, effective or, you know, whatever. Well, so Athletes I, for Care has been uh, super big advocates for cannabis. Could you guys ever see your organization also advocating for psychedelics as well? We've we've started to, uh, you know, head in that direction. There's a number of members, including other founders like myself, who are big believers in psilocybin and other psychedelic compounds. So, um, you know, we're really just about being a resource for athletes in their life after to come and find a new community of people, to find resources on how to get healthy, mentally, physically, spiritually. And, you know, down the line, we really hope to, you know, my big dream with Athletes for Care is to have some sort of facility, you know, that people can travel to and come to and, you know, like, uh, you know, in many ways, like a rehabilitation spa. So, um, you know, we really look at it. Most importantly, it's a community of like-minded people, you know, where you can Mm -hmm. come and get real information about how to get healthy and take better care of yourself and your family. Um, we're going to be respectful of your time. We got two more questions. Okay. Um, my favorite question is about failure. I, I truly believe that successful people are only successful because they have failed and failed and failed and looked at the things that caused them to fail and said, okay, I get it. I don't want to do that again. I don't want to do that again. Can you talk about, failure and how it helped shape you into the success that you are, whether it's from the football field, but more, I actually think more importantly, the person that you've become, because you're, you're the kind of person I think most people would aspire to be. Yeah. Failure, man. Failure is, you know, it's, uh, it's inevitable and it's, it's a part of the process, you know, whether you like it or not. Um, who was it? Uh, (laughs) I forget. There's so many great quotes on failure, you know, like I've failed a thousand times to get to the one success or whatever that quote is by, Mm -hmm. uh, Thomas Jefferson or Edison. Edison. I think it's Edison. Edison. Yeah. I think you're right on Edison. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, failure, God, I mean, I, I don't know if I can really name on in, you know, specific details, all the failures I've experienced in my life. I mean, I've had failures as an athlete, you know, I, um, I mean, you could look at, I could, in, in some respects, I could look at my entire football career as a failure because I never went to the playoffs and I never won a Super Bowl. And in my time, you know, and going into the NFL, I had this idea that I was going to play 10 years and I only ended up playing six, you know, so I dealt with failure on that level. I've dealt with failure as a family man and letting my, my wife absolutely down and uh, just, you know, making some massive mistakes throughout my time as a, as a man and as a family person, as a husband, as a father, et cetera. And I think, you know, the most important thing is that, is recognizing that as failures are this innate part of the process, you know, and anything you're going to do, no matter what it is, it's to understand that, be able to acknowledge it and face it and not let it destroy you either, you know, because many people fail and they think, oh, fuck it. That's it. I quit. I can't do it, obviously, because I failed. I failed, so it doesn't work. I don't know how to do it. I can't do it, etc. That is the only time a failure becomes something negative, you know, because all along the way, failures, you might fail a thousand times, like that quote says. But as long as you're doing different things and you're learning from that experience and you're understanding what you did wrong, what you did wrong, which really, in the grand scheme, as you know, the veils of sort of cultural indoctrination begin to fall, you realize there's never really any do any doing anything wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all just part of the process. You know, and for instance, you know, I've 
I've started a number of companies during my life after football. The first one was Be True Wellness, which was a CBD company, which really, you know, didn't do a whole lot, but I learned a lot about people, about business, about, you know, the nature of the cannabis industry. I learned a lot about what I'm actually interested in as a human being and as an entrepreneur and as a, um, you know, uh, as a voice, as a character, as a personality in this world that we call, you know, social media and technology, et cetera. And so, you know, failure, really the biggest thing is just to recognize failure as this innate part of the process and turn it into, you know, rather than thinking of the failures you've had, just look at it as attempts that didn't achieve the level of success that you had expected of yourself, you know, and that goes back to like, what, what are your expectations of yourself? You know, um, I've just finished watching this documentary uh, about Michael Jordan and the Bulls. Oh, the last dance. Dance. Yeah. You know, I don't know if you got, Nick. Yeah. I just finished it uh, the other day. Yeah. And I mean, you know, Michael is so, it, it was so inspiring because Michael was really like the pure embodiment of the spirit of basketball, you know, and the spirit of competition. You know, and he didn't win every game. He missed a lot of game winning shots. Mm -hmm. Like he was, you know, I don't think any, and I'm sure in his mind, and I think he could really use some, some psychedelics himself uh, to let go of a lot of his sort of self resentment and shame about whatever failures he thinks he had. Um, But, you know, it's amazing. You know, you look at Michael Jordan, who to me is like, has the perfect uh, legend, you know. Mm-hmm. He has, like, the incredible failures and the mountainous successes, you know. And it's really just paints this full, beautiful picture of who he is and, you know, what he had to overcome and his perseverance as an athlete, et cetera. You know, and Mike Tyson is the same. You know, Mike, Mike had incredible highs and... Uh, unfathomable lows, you know, he's been in the pits of hell and many times of his life and he's managed some way to climb out of that, you know, and I think that, you know, I have really, for whatever reason, other than, you know, just sheer will and, you know, looking, whatever it is that it takes you to find inspiration to carry on, it's just about continuing to carry on, you know, at the end of the day. Yeah, I think that's fucking great awesome. perspective, man. Yeah, uh, you can't beat yourself up for trying. And uh, the Michael Jordan analogy is, is I think, really apt. Where he had he struggled for those the he didn't win a championship. What was it until ninety one? He had to go through those Pistons. He had to go through the Celtics to get there. And if he, he's given up. If he's feeling failure, he's not achieving those other six rings. So I, I think you're Absolutely. dead on there. Um, so like Lewis said, uh, the, we got our last question for you here, and we're both media guys, so this is one that we really like to ask a lot of our guests and it's, you know, what's the story that you want to see on the front page of the, the Los Angeles times or the wall street journal, New York times, when it comes to cannabis or psychedelics, it's either a story that you think uh, the general public is missing or just something that you think is undercovered. Mm. Well, I have to say if there's any, um, If there's any headline I'd love to see, it would have to be uh, cannabis is federally legal. You know, <laughs> cannabis now federally Amen. legal. Um, other than that, you know, I don't think anything really matters at this point because, you know, you could have, there's all the information out there in the world. You know, at this point, it's just like, let's get this thing done. Take it off the schedule one listing. And let's move forward, you know. And help uh, it boost the economy. Absolutely. I mean, haven't we spent enough time, you know, throwing innocent people in jail for nonviolent marijuana possessions and et cetera? And, you know, our economy needs it. This is a huge job opportunity, 
you know, for millions of Americans across the country and around the world, really. Mm-hmm. You know, so cannabis is now federally legal. I mean, throw in there psilocybin and psychedelics now federally legal as well. <laughs> I think that would be huge. But that's going to happen know, before cannabis. I know. In a weird yeah. twist, it's like <laughs> the FDA is, you know, fast tracking psychedelics you know, psilocybin and MDMA trials. It's insane. It's like, it's, what? Well, it's 30 years to be an overnight success. You know, it's, it's, yeah, it's yeah. have you, have you ever met Rick Doblin from maps? I haven't I met him. He would no. groove. Yeah. I think you and he would get along well. Um, well, look, man, first of all, thank you again. Um, we would love to have you back whenever Absolutely. you want to come on and shoot the shit. Um, and then the next time that we can make it to LA, we'll come out and see you and, and burn one together. I love it guys. I love it. Thank yeah. you so much. Yeah, thanks, Thank Evan. you. A special thanks to our guest, Evan Britton. Uh, make sure that you check him out, uh, on his podcast, hot boxing that he does with Mike Tyson, or you can find his writings and his affirmations on his website, evanbritton.com. Um, Evan's also, uh, going to be launching a new podcast. Probably by the time this episode's up, it'll have been launched. It's, uh, the Evan flow podcast where he's going to be exploring spirituality, wellness, consciousness, and talking with, uh, different influencers around the space. So make sure that you're checking that out. Um, and then as always, thanks for listening to us. Uh, if you want to chat with us, find us on Twitter, Instagram, um, all that, or you can drop us a line at greenrush at kcsa.com. We're always looking for feedback and guest ideas. Um, and make sure that you guys are uh, subscribing in your favorite podcatcher. That's one take, Shay. One take.